Father, I'm praying that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will glorify you. That you, by your spirit, will do deeply within our hearts what no human being can. We've learned already, unless the Father draws him, uh, apart from your agency, apart from your work within us, we're simply reading printed words on a page. But as we consider who you are, what it is that you have done, the promises that you give, the claims that you make, we would pray that we would be willing to take that next step. That we would yield, that we would surrender, that we would follow, that we would obey, that we would rejoice and celebrate that we're not in this by ourselves. But you by your spirit are going to instruct, coach, challenge, comfort, encourage, each one of us according to our need. May it be so that you would be glorified and we as your people, encouraged, uh, matured in some way, ready to do those things that you have asked. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe if you've traveled internationally, as my wife and I have had the pleasure of doing since we were first involved in member care back in 1992, we, we traveled for the first time to um, Pakistan. Maybe you've come up against what we would call passport control. Now, there is nothing in my opinion that tells you you don't belong in the place you're now going like passport control. Because if you don't have the necessary documents, your passport and uh, a visa for the place usually that you're traveling, although there are some agreements between nations where those things um, aren't necessary, mostly they are. Mostly someone wants to see your passport, they want to know that the identity matches, that all that you're telling about yourself through that document is true. But in, when you navigate passport control at a border, depending on the trade agreements, as I've said, nothing tells you that you don't belong and you have no access to the benefits that citizens possess in that nation like passport control. You know you're going to be observed, you're going to be watched, you're going to be checked on. If only at the border, you are a stranger in a strange land. That's at least what they want you to feel like. So you'll be on your best behavior, that you will obey their rules and laws, and you won't be escorted out of the country in due process. You see, what it says at that sign point, and some of the words I've read are visitor, alien. Isn't that a delightful term? from some place no one else is like you in this place. Uh, stranger, foreigner, non-resident. All those words mean the same thing. You are not of us. You don't belong. Now, do we have words in our culture? Do we have ways of saying to someone that we know that we feel different about that they don't fit and they don't belong. I, I was talking about this with a friend of mine in Japan some time ago when I was on a visit there and he said, you know, I went to my neighbors and I said, you know, I've been here a long time now and they have this whole process of sorting garbage and they do it collectively in a neighborhood and they put a, a, a net over it so the birds don't get at it. I mean, meticulous and, and well organized, right? Everything runs by engineering there. So he said, look, it's my turn. I'll take a, I'll take a, a, a turn at uh, collecting the garbage and sorting it and doing all of that. And the neighbor said to him, oh, you are our guest. 
Do you know what he really meant? Guy, you don't belong here. You're not like us and there's no way you're letting sort our garbage. Really, you don't fit. Do we have ways, even in our culture, as nice as Canadians like to consider themselves to be, that we have ways of saying to people around us, you don't belong. Creating a barrier, creating that wall. Because the metaphor that Paul wants us to consider in Ephesians this morning in chapter 2 is that we do belong. The word is belonging and the great lengths to which God through his son Jesus along with the Holy Spirit, our triune God, are engaged and involved in not just inviting you but being certain that you are one of us as the family of God. He wants you to know and feel as, as he's writing these words all the things that he has done to give you not just an opportunity but a welcome home to his forever family. That's what we'll be considering as a theme in this passage of scripture. But I want you to understand that your belonging is not a single access. It has two directions. The first direction is God wants you first and foremost to belong to him. But once you belong to him, what he says is knock off all the ways you tell people around you they don't belong to the family that I've adopted them into. In other words, get over yourself, your hostility, your biases... Because if you have received Christ and you belong to me, my expectation is that you will help others who are following me belong and have a sense that they are attached to me and to you. Now that's a big challenge, isn't it? You know the old wag who said the little poem, uh, to live above with saints we love, oh that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, now that's a different story. Yeah, if people were just a little bit more like us and not quite so different, it might be easier for us. Right, get over yourself. The scripture is saying, whom the Father adopts, so do you. We're going to unpack that a little bit more, but you belong to God and you belong to one another. And belonging, we learn from the developmental psychology, that that whole area of study is postulated first by British psychologist John Bowlby, is an innate human need to form a close emotional bond with a caregiver early in life. And if you are missing that, you have a form of attachment that will be wonky. Now, that's a human speaking about human need. But we see the parallel of that is that God wants you to know the lengths to which he has gone because he loves you and wants you to lean into your belonging in Christ. I belong to him. He's never going to cancel. No, just think about that assurance that God gives us throughout the scripture where he's not going to wake up in the morning and go, you know what, Dave, I've really given this some thought. You're going back to the orphanage. I'm canceling the deal. I'm kind of fed up with the fact that you just can't seem to get your stuff together. Now, you might feel that way about yourself. You might even in prayer, in a moment of honesty and candor, say, God, aren't you tired of me? Because I'm pretty tired of myself. We understand the struggles, the journey we're on, that, that goal of transformation. And as Spencer has pointed out in earlier weeks, that there's this unholy triumphant, the world, the flesh, and the devil that are constantly 
attacking us and wanting us not to follow the master that we now serve who has bought it at his own cost, his lifeblood. So in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, we learn the lengths to which Jesus has gone to give us this eternal bonding to himself and what that bonding process to each other as his followers really needs to be both with a decision and then some action. What Paul does to reinforce for us what Jesus has done so that we can learn to bond with him and then to push us towards bonding with others who are just like us, his followers, is to remind us who we are. Now, let's just look at that in verse 10, a verse that we didn't read earlier because it belongs to the previous uh, chapter, but it really sets us up for what he's going to talk about next. And it says this, for we are his workmanship. He made us, right? He goes on to say created, meaning there's a recreation process within us. Not only are we made in the image and likeness of God from the beginning, but we are reconciled to him and there is a change within us when we receive Christ and the Holy Spirit moves in and possesses us. We belong to him. We're created then with a purpose. And what is the purpose? For good works. And we might go, now, what are those good works? That would be great. It would be a fruitful time and a good reflection. But what we ought to expect when Paul writes like this is he's going to explain to us what the good works are in the next, next few paragraphs. And he does. It's about helping those around us belong to Jesus in those two stages. The first one we talked about sharing the good news because... That's what we have to share. That's what's transformed us. But the second is to connect, to adopt, to be willing to walk with those who are following Jesus just as I am and to assist them in that whole process of belonging to him as I do. That's why missional communities are the bomb, so to speak. That's where all the good stuff happens. That's where you really connect with people because look, I, I can say this to you, I call it, a, 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 you know, I'm preaching. I'm giving you a, a message, a talk. But where are you gonna practice this? You're not gonna do it here. Do you know why accountability doesn't work in a large gathering like reunion? Because I can't say to you, well, did you do what we told you to do last week? I might even get a little miffed and say, why should I tell you anything new if you're not doing what I already told you? Because there's no accountability. How do I check with all of you folks? Do we do it as a sign-in by raising a head? You know what I'm saying? It doesn't work. But when you're in a small group and you lower your guard and you get real with people and you say, this is what my struggle is, this is what my journey is, this is what my hope is, this is what I'm doing, and people go, wow, I relate to that, and I'm going to pray for you, and we do, suddenly transformation occurs and somebody says, oh, how did it go? Oh, yeah, right. I have to take this seriously. Someone's checking on me. Not because they're the, you know, COTC investigation committee, but because they actually love you enough to care about what you've said. Follow your life. Invest with you. Because they are what? Acting on the adoption principle. You belong to God. I need to belong with you. And that happens in group. If you're not in one... Pressure, Pastor Spencer. Get me in a group. How many times do I have to write? No, no you know what I'm saying. Don't give him attitude. <laughs> but it's invitational. And, and if you're not, I really want you to know you're shortchanging yourself on two counts. 
You're missing supporting others and you're missing them supporting you because you know, need to know Christianity is a team sport. No lone rangers. Community. Do you know God lives in community? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He were made in his image and likeness. Doesn't it make sense? We would hunger for community. You know where the hunger can be met? MC. Come on. MC, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to know you're with me, at least at the start of the message. You might be angry with me and, and decide not to listen at the end. I get that, but you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm coaching, I'm encouraging, I'm challenging. I'm saying it's really to your benefit. Look, that was way off script. I better get going and stick to my notes. But as, you know, the issue that we're involved with as we serve Christ and we belong to him as his workmanship we continue to understand the unsearchable riches of Christ and they've been well articulated as we've been exploring the book of Revelation on our Sunday reunions. But all these concepts and outcomes are ours in Jesus. And what Paul is describing is how vast and great and truly significant they all are. And in short, it means we can't exhaust their value. We can never come to the end of their application and we can never completely grasp their true value. We get it in layers. I don't know about you, but when I understand layers, it's like you peel something, oh, there's more there. You peel something, oh, there's more there. But it works opposite to what you think in terms of the riches of Jesus. When you peel the layer, suddenly what you find under is bigger than what you just peeled off. You go, no, this makes no sense. It makes perfect sense spiritually because it's not defined by the dimensions of time and space. It's the agency of God at work in you through his son Jesus. And you'll start using phrases like, I need Jesus as much in my life now as the first day I understood who he was and bent my knee, humbled my heart, received him as savior, and he forgave me and adopted me into his family. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know he was adopting me. I've just discovered that, you might say. Wow, new layer. That's what God wants you to do as you discover these unsearchable riches that are his. But before we get into the riches of belonging, Paul stops and uses a very powerful teaching tool to remind us of how awful it was when we didn't belong. And he says in this conclusion as he's moving forward, therefore, remember. Now, why do we need to remember things? Like where you put your keys. Do you know, one of the things that you might not know about this, you're maybe going to suspect, but I'm an ADHD guy. I'm medicated. You should see me when I'm not. Oh, look at that, a bird. You know what I'm saying? Highly distracted. Easily distracted. In that entire process, I need to learn how to remember where I put things. How often did I say to my wife, Donna, have you seen my keys? As if she moved them. What did that really mean? I didn't put them where they belong. In order to find them, I've got to have these coping tools. When you remember things, it brings to memory things that if you forget, you are then at a disadvantage. Now, why would Paul want us to remember how we were when we didn't belong? Because when you remember what it was like when you didn't belong and you then review what it is to belong, you prize the riches 
of belonging. So you say to your partner, your wife, your spouse, at anniversary, I am so much better with you. I remember what it was like to live when you weren't in my life. I am so grateful for who you are and all you've done. I remember, and then that has meaning and depth when I say how much I treasure who you are and what you've done. Who doesn't want to hear that? So when he's reinforcing this, it isn't so that we would have some kind of worm theology. Oh, wretched man that I am, and really lean into it. No, he wants us to remember, not that we would cancel who he is in our life, but so that we would deepen our value of all that we have received. Therefore, remember. Now, there's another reason we need to remember. And it's one of the things that he confronts his own people, the Jewish, the chosen people, because they take all the promises that were given them, the covenants, and they make themselves special through it. And remembering what we've received, twisted to become favoritism. God likes me more than he likes you, because after all, I've got the covenant and all the promises. What do you have, Gentile? Well, Paul's going to elucidate. He's going to bring us into that. Because he says in verses 11 to 12, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by that what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, it's only a human construct, but it is an obedience to God. But he says, remember you were at that time what? When you weren't circumcised and part of all of that. And he then goes on and says, you were at that time separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth or the citizenship of heaven, strangers to the covenants of, of promise and having no hope and without God in the world. Our alienation from God and his chosen people had one side, one sign and four results. Now the sign was circumcision. I'm not going to explain that. I'm just going to assume you understand what that is. Why was that sign instituted? Because it seems so crazy, if I might use that. Like, what is it about? Well, what it was about was to keep the focus on the promise to Abraham that from his seed, a Messiah would come. And when you go through the rite of circumcision, and we're all entering into the covenants of God as Jewish people through that rite as men, only men are circumcised, it is because it is to remember that from the seed of Abraham will come the promised deliverer. That's what it means. They keep acting on that in the hope that the Messiah will come, as he promised, from Israel. It was a national focus, one people united before God in the covenant. Now, certainly, our world is going to be blessed by what the Messiah does as we read that, but I want to tell you, no one in that culture at that time really understood what that meant. What the Jewish people considered was, we're going to be on the top of the heap, we're God's chosen people, and when we're there, then we'll be gracious and good and kind to everybody else and benefit them. That's not at all what God meant, as we know. He meant the Messiah would come from you, and the work of the Messiah would be for all people. But we don't get that in the promise. You see, it's so easy when we don't remember who we were 
to assume that all the things that God has done for us makes us better than we really are. Favoritism. We the people. So a pox on all of you unbelievers because we're the good guys on the inside. You know what I'm saying? It very easily moves to that if we don't remember but God was the one who does it all. Not us. We're his. So do you see how favoritism can creep in? But what were we? He says you were four things. First of all, you were separated from Christ because in, you need to remember that in the first place, Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. He came for his people, as was promised. You don't have any stake in that. You were separated. You couldn't get to him. You were outside of all that happened in his earthly ministry. Secondly, you were alienated from citizenship in Israel. None of the rights and privileges were theirs. You didn't belong. We were on the outside looking in, not on the inside looking out. We were on the wrong side of the fence. And there are so many examples of this, the have not seeing what the haves have and either seething with envy, jealousy, desire, want, or hunger, but looking at that and thinking, we're on the wrong side of the fence. You're separated. Thirdly, you were outside the covenants of promise. The promises that God made to Israel, he made to them. And they had every right to obey and follow, but we can't do that unless we convert and give up all of our identity and choose to be Jews and go through all the requirements. Fourth, it meant that our final place was we had no hope, no promise, no means of coming to God, excluded from all that worship was in Israel, and we were in the world without God. That's our position. And then Paul says, but now, this is what you are, were, remember that, but then understand who you are now. Using a, a, a maritime vernacular phrase, come from away, it's a term that was used to describe others as the ones who don't belong. It, it, it might be matter-of-factly when someone says, have you met your neighbor who said, yes, he's come from away? What does he mean he's not from here? Wasn't born here, can introduce you, don't know his family, don't know his kinship, don't know his lineage, he's come from away. Or it's used pejoratively, oh, he's come from away. Meaning, no, he doesn't fit. And you know what, he's been here 50 years, he still has come from away. We have ways of reinforcing that people don't belong. It's a maritime colloquialism, often used to remind people they just don't fit. A friend of mine, again, in missions, was learning the language of the people, and when I was visiting her on one occasion, she said, you know, I've been here 15 years, and I'm pretty decent at the language, but the thing I realize, no matter how hard I try, I'm reminded every day that I'm not from here. I have to accept the fact that I'm going to travel through my life in this context as a stranger. But Jesus turns that idea on its head and he says, you were far away, but now because of the death of Christ on the cross who shed his blood, it flowed in sacrifice through his death, you now have what? Come near. You couldn't come to me, but here's the truth and the power of the gospel. I have come for you. 
You know when you're seeking out Christ, when you're learning about the gospel and it all seems like it's on your shoulders and you need to figure it out and you need to make this choice and you feel the pressure of that? I want you to know that there's another end of that rope and the entire time he is drawing you through life event and circumstance and saying, come to me. Take another step. Follow. See what I'm doing how I'm yearning for you, wanting you, and all I've done to receive you. You were away, but now you're near. He ransoms us out of our from away status and brings us home. He adopts us, he loves us, he forgives us, he wants us, he chooses us, he receives us, and he is ever and always for you. Through his death, he gives your life value and meaning and most of all, that sense of forever belonging. Easy to forget that in the day-to-day -day practice of the world. Easy to look for it in other places, other things, other relationships. Others will fail as Jesus never fails. Others may say, yeah, I know I made a promise, but I've changed my mind. Jesus' promises are uncancelable. They're built in his character. They're rooted in his word and his promise. And Paul dips into the language that might puzzle us. In verse 14, he tells us that he is our peace. He can give us assurance of calm and peace and rock-solid belonging. Because in his death, he did this interesting thing. He says, he broke down the wall of hostility. I go, a wall? What is the wall? Well, think about passport control, for one. But maybe it's good for you to see a picture of the temple. Here's the first picture I want you to see. And you can see the, the temple. This is the temple mount. It's just the platform that's left. All the buildings have been um, torn down or mostly torn down. And on the opposite side of this is where the wailing wall is. It's the part of the mount that the Jewish people go to and they uh, offer prayers and they worship God at that place because they can't go up onto the mount. There's no building there. And they want to honor him and, and come as close to they can as his physical presence. But I want you to see a second picture because it shows the, 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 the um, area better. So the next slide will show you that there is, and I've highlighted it here in blue. Do you see that balustrade, as some would call it? Um, it it's a short wall. It's only, only uh, about three or four feet high. You could step over it if you were determined or, or clamber over it. But every gate you can see is a bit of a bigger stone on. And every one of those in Greek and in Latin, one on either side, it says words to this effect. No stranger is to enter within this balustrade around the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will himself be responsible. And we would say, for what? Prosecution? No, for execution on the spot. If they know you are not a Jewish person, in keeping the law, they would kill you on the spot. They have a temple guard. No kidding. Pretty serious. You know, most people have buildings like we have, in which we say, the door is open, anybody can come in and follow. The Jewish community said, if you ain't from here, you can't go there. And if you do, off with your head. Why? Because God is holy, 
and he gives us the commandments and our life is through obedience to those things and we come by sacrifice and you just can't waltz in to figure it out. You either belong to the covenants or you're excluded. And then there's a hostility. You see that right away. You can't come. So the death of Jesus Christ, what did he do? A, a number of different things that were, had, had huge import. One of them is that the Holy of Holies, there's two partitions in the holy place, that big piece there that's raised. The big part, you can go in where the table of showbread was that shows God's sustenance and care and the 12 tribes and there's the, the lamp that never is to go out and then there's this curtain and on the other side of the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant the mercy seat that once a year the priest, high priest alone would go in with a rope, by the way, on his ankle because if he lived outside the covenants and God struck him dead, they needed to be able to drag his body out so they could at least deal with it. No kidding. Pretty serious. God is holy. You don't trifle. You go prepared. And would take blood in a bowl and sprinkle it against the altar and say, God, we have broken your covenant, we've broken your commandments, grant mercy and grace, look on the lifeblood of what we offer you and cleanse us and restore us as your people. Once a year, day of national atonement. And when Jesus died, that veil, which is really a carpet so thickly woven, was torn from the top to the bottom, meaning what? God is not confined to a place. He meets with his people anywhere, anytime, any place. There is no longer need to be thrown on the mercy seat. Jesus' blood cleanses us, and there is mercy ever flowing. That's what he's done for us. So that's why when we say God is in this place, we're wrong. He's not in the place. You know who he's in? Well, we're going to come to that. He's in us. We bring God with it, as it were, when we come to reunion. But God doesn't hang out here. Aren't you grateful? You don't have to come here to pray. You don't have to come here even to learn. You don't have to come here because you're demanded to fill something within a requirement. You come here to what? Glorify God and honor him and worship him together. It's a wonderful experience. We love reunion but we don't have to do reunion to come close to God. Why? Because God lives in you through his Holy Spirit. He's not only adopted you to make you part of the family, but he is ever with you, so there's no place you ever go that God isn't with you. Really? Really? <laughs> so powerful, the death of Jesus on the cross. So the barrier that divides us is now gone. But I want you to see that if we don't understand this, the equivalent of this is the no soliciting sign that people put on their doors. Have you ever seen those signs? Maybe you're dropping something off at a neighbor and you realize, oh, this guy really doesn't want anybody he doesn't know to knock on his door. So, and there's a whole list of things. If you're going to say something religious, if you're offering a subscription, if you're, don't bother knocking. We should listen to that and not do it if we fit one of those categories, in my opinion. But what they're really saying is, I don't want you and I don't care what you have to offer. Can I remind you that every Jewish male entering the temple had to be circumcised, normally completed on the day he was eight days old? 
And if you decide to seek God, you would have had to go to the temple. You couldn't enter into the holy place. You could only bring a sacrifice and the priest would do the rest to mediate between you and God. And now Jesus mediates for all of us. We don't need a saint. We don't need any other person through whom we go. We go directly to God and God is in us. Isn't that powerful? Maybe it would be appropriate to say amen. Why? Because this changes everything for you. You are not trying to be better. He was good enough for you. Right? It's not conditioned on performance. It's the unsearchable riches of God being for you through his death on the cross that removes your sin and brings you home. Adoption. So God has no hostility towards you. You know what, there's never going to be a time in your life where he's going to come along and say, Dave, you know it's been a while you've been following me, but there's a few things I need to talk about so that you can really get settled and I can release them. No, he released them all, all paid at Jesus. Far as it says in the Old Testament, the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions and as the First Nations, person said, and he put up a sign. He put them in the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean and he said, no fishing. I'm not going to bring them up against you. Jesus paid for them all. The barrier that divides us is gone. The point that Paul and New Testament writers agree on is that there is no need for sacrifice. That is gone. There is no need for us to rebuild the temple or to enter into a sacrificial system. So we are not the chosen and unchosen any longer, but those of us who have received Christ, whether we had the covenants or we had no covenants, we are in Christ. And now we look at one another and go, wow, you had a very different starting point. And I really treasure that. And he says, but the end point is the same. It's what Jesus has done, not what we have done. If there were thousands of rivers of the blood of lambs, they would never atone the way Jesus has. They can't, but he has. Paul uses another term, reconciled, which means that the grieved and opposing parties have worked out a settlement because both are reconciled in Jesus in the same way by his death on the cross. There's no difference. And not only are we reconciled to be with each other, but it's based on the reconciliation we have with God who now finds no offensive thing within us. He's atoned for us, he's pardoned us, and he welcomes us and adopts us. Isn't that incredibly rich? Not what you do for God, not what you bargain with God, not ever what you deserve, not because God looked at you and said, you know what, I kind of like Dave. I think he might do something for me. Let's bring him home. When Dave was a mess, without hope in the world and without God in his life, Jesus died for him. Nothing do I bring only to your cross I cling. Only Jesus. Only what he's done. It's what he's done that matters. It is what ends the hostility we have with God and it gives us the power, if we're willing to act on it, to end the hostility between ourselves. Because sometimes we do get hostile, don't we? We get our feelings hurt. 
or we get ripped off by a brother who should have supported us. You know what I'm saying. It can be in varying degrees. And Paul writes elsewhere, why is there division among you? Why aren't you putting each other first? Why aren't you living like adopted kids? Can you imagine? I, I can. I think this has happened both in my experience and in the lives of my kids as we were raising them. Where they're in a playground and one kid turns to another and says, hey buddy, watch yourself. My dad's bigger than your dad. We know where that goes. He's what, bringing in reinforcements so he's protected and lives safe. But could you imagine two kids in the same family? My sister says to me, Dave, you better watch yourself. My dad's bigger than your dad. What? We've got the same dad. That's the point of the scripture. Why is there any room for hostility? Dad is the one who stands between you. Dad is the one who's brought you into the family. Dad is the one who makes you belong. So now work it out between yourselves. We, both Jews and Gentiles, through faith receive Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and we now have this direct access to God. He is in us, and the Spirit takes residence in us. We all have direct access, all of us, all the time, any time, time any place. I remember when I was with Donna, and we were visiting friends, missionary friends that we'd gone back a number of times. I think I've been 14 times to Pakistan. And when we were there, we were in the foothills of the Himalayas. We were going for a walk up about the eight, 9,000 foot level with our friends who were great outdoors people and wanted to show us things we would otherwise never see off the beaten path. Hopped in their van and off we went. And it was November and snows had fallen in that area. And we went from this beautiful sunny day to the dark side of a mountain. And it was a curve. And I looked over the edge and it was about 8,000 feet down. If you fell over the edge, you wouldn't stop till you got to the bottom. It wasn't a complete sheer drop, but it was a drop you wouldn't want to scramble up. Never alone drive down. You know what I'm saying. And we hit these ice ruts. And we all felt the tension at the same moment. And I think our driver, Peter's eyes at that moment were the size of hubcaps. Because we all thought the same thing as we were heading to the blue without anything underneath us. I'm not proud of this, but the only thing that came to my mind was to say to God, you brought me a long way to kill me. Now, I should have said something far more sanctified, but in those moments, nothing comes to mind. And suddenly, no kidding, the tires found purchase in the rut, and we turned the corner, came around, back in the sunshine. Peter turned around, he's British, and he said, that was close. Talk about an understatement. We all thought we were dying. I, to this day, think God, by his grace, had an angel that just pushed on the side of our van and kept us going around. I have no other way to account for it as I'm standing here before you but to say, thank you, Jesus. You decided to lengthen my life. I'm grateful. You're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. Anytime, any place, direct contact with God for his own spirit indwells us. Every one of his followers, without exception, 
He's in you. You may not understand all of that. You may need to dig deeper in it. You might need to yield to his spirit. You might need to learn his whisperings. You might need to learn how he lifts from the scripture and teaches you. You have many things maybe you need to learn, but there's one thing you don't need to question. He's in you. He promises he'll never abandon you. So then it says in verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household. Now, if you're a fellow citizen with the saint, what that really means, and this is the language of the scripture, when you come to faith in Jesus, when you were forgiven and reconciled and adopted and valued and loved and gifted and indwelled, you are now what? One of the holy ones of God. The other word for that is saint. I wouldn't suggest that we start saying, you know, St. Spencer. I mean, not that it would be too far from the truth. Well, we have this idea that saints are better than they are because they've worked for it and they're worthy of it. Nonsense. It's what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for him. Treasure that wealth. All of us belong. So my question is, do you know it deeply? Do you allow yourself emotionally to visit that? Do you know how deeply runs the Father's love for us that he has given his only son, his treasure, so that we would be ransomed, redeemed, reconciled, that we would know we're chosen and valued and loved and belong? Have you visited that recently? Have you allowed your mind to go deep into that? And Paul follows with this other metaphor. He returns to the idea of a temple and says, now I want you to understand this. Those stones are done. You are the temple. You're being built with purpose and plan by God the Father into what? A habitation that he himself wants to possess. So is there a sense in which God who is in us is also among us? And the answer is yes. Is there a sense when we come to worship that we might celebrate that God indwells the praises of his people, that God joins us in that worship, that God exalts and receives it as we give it, and we have a sense that we are with him as his family? The answer is yes, of course. There's something wonderful about reunion when we who meet in smaller groups come together and worship using songs and prayer and testimony, the breaking of bread and communion, seeing those baptized in obedience to him. He inhabits our gatherings, the gathering that is built on the words that the ones were sent to share with us. That's what apostle means. It's not a title of honor, although we honor them for it. It simply means when God said, go and take my message, they said, okay. It's a privilege, it's a pleasure, I'll do it. And we now have part of that record. That's what Ephesians is, the letter that Paul, the sent one, to the Gentiles wrote down. And we look at it and go, oh, that's what he wants us to know. That's what he wants us to dig deep into. And when we understand it and receive it and grow in it and transform by it and apply it in our life, we are doing what? Being built all that much more into the temple for his habitation. We hear, we respond, we follow, we obey, we discover that God is making from us a place he loves to indwell. He indwells in us and among us as his people. And to use the purpose he is telling us to expand in our world, to invite others to join us, and as we join together to grow in grace and the truth of the gospel. So what about you? What are you going to do with this?
This is where I want to challenge you to application. But here, listen, guys. I can't check on you. You're on your own. That's why you need the small group so you're not on your own. You keep hearing me reinforce that. But the first thing is we use these three words currently encounter. Are you willing to take God at his word and say, I don't know all this means, but if you tell me, I'm going to receive it. If you tell me you're in me, I'm going to believe it. I might need to tell you, please help me know what that means. Please help me sense your presence. Please do something more within me that I can feel the stirrings of the Spirit and, and understand what it is to dig deeper within his word and understand your favor, that your eyes are on me, you're guiding me, you're leading me. I, I need help with that, but God, I'm telling you, I don't want to stand back. I, I want you. I want to encounter you. I want to know you more. Secondly, we say, not only is there encounter, but there's formation. So how is God going to form you deeply in your life through knowing the unsearchable riches of Jesus and the extent to which God was willing to go to make you his child? Will it overflow in your life with gratitude? Will it impact your life as to how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you treat your neighbors, how you treat your colleagues? Will you be aware that God has you, and this is the third word, on mission, to be a light and an influence to people who are around you, a letter that they can read and say, oh, that's what a Christian is. Now I understand why you're all of this thing about the gospel, because I can see it in your life. That's what we want. But when someone says, why are you the way you are? And they don't mean weird from away. They mean, what motivates you? Why are you this person? The answer is, it's all about Jesus. It's what he did. Encounter, transformation, and mission. Fueled by who Jesus is and what he's done. Once you didn't belong, but if you received Christ, you're in. Once you had no hope and help in the world without God, now he's in you. It may be today that you've been here and you've been listening and you maybe have more questions you need to ask or maybe you've been waiting for a moment like this to say, you know, I need to, I need to decide that I want to belong to this. I want to belong to God and I want to belong to a community. Is there room for me? And the answer is yes. And you can do so today. There's going to be people at the front praying. Come and speak with them. I'm going to be hanging around. Come and speak with me. Speak with one of the other elders. Speak with someone that you know in this congregation and say, I, I, I want to belong. What do I do? We'd be glad to help you. Father, thank you that your spirit's been among us. Thank you that those of us who have claimed you as Savior and Lord and been reconciled, you're in us. Thank you that you've been among us in our praise and worship, but God, you're ever in us. You ever, ever lead us, intercede for us, help us, and direct us. We're full of gratitude, and we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.